We're going to review quickly on this beginning in the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, to see what God laid forth when he invented one man and one woman and then the family. We're going to look at this, and what we'll probably settle on this morning a little bit will be what's called complementarianism and egalitarianism, or what is also called economic subordinationism or ontological subordinationism. So these are big, fancy $5 words. When you understand them, it's like, oh, that makes sense. Because the doctrines of God make sense. You don't have to do like a spiritual twister, left hand yellow, right foot green. You don't have to do that to make it work. So we're just calling this God's Blueprint for Biblical Families Part 2. We said last week, culture is one of the greatest blind spots in a man's heart, especially in regard to family. We said the reason family and culture becomes a blind spot is because it's all you know. It's how you were raised. Around here, some of you folks, you grew up eating possum and eating squirrel brains, and you thought nothing of it because that's how you were raised. I think that's weird and disgusting. We went to Botswana several years ago, and they served us Mopani caterpillars, which they eat like Cheetos. Just pop these caterpillars in their mouth. And I did the first one okay. The second one, I went into convulsions of dry heaving, which was fun for everybody involved but me. And I said, you guys, in Botswana, they have more cows than people. They just walk all over the highways. And I said, you guys have more cows than people, and you eat Mopani caterpillars. And one of the pastors said, and you are surrounded by oceans on three sides, and you choose to eat frog legs. (laughs) Fair enough. How did they know us hillbillies eat frog legs? To them, you know, you got an ocean on three sides of the Gulf, the Atlantic, the Pacific. Why would you not eat fish every day? It's culture. But you don't know any different because it's how you were raised. Like my girls, they're raised around tongues. My kids pray in tongues. They don't get it when Christians don't pray in tongues. They want to know what's wrong with them. Out of the mouth of babes. Why don't they pray in tongues? Don't they know it's in the Bible? Don't they know they can have it? Don't they know Jesus promised it? Yes, yes, and yes, yes. I don't know, sweetie. I'm going to ask them next time why they don't pray in tongues. Don't they want more of God? These are wonderful questions, sweetie. And if they would listen to you, maybe they could get spirit-filled. My kids will know nothing but the spirit-filled life. Of course, that offends other people, maybe even some of you, for me to say, my kids pray in tongues and you think it's of the devil. That's a cultural difference. My culture is based on the Bible. Paul said, I would to God you all prayed in tongues, uh, but I'm glad I speak in tongues more than you all. My kids pray in the Spirit. Now, justice does not yet, but he'll get it. He knows it. He understands what it is. He can tell it's not English. But this is all my kids will know. That's their culture. But no matter where you're from, whether you're Hispanic, whether you're Asian, whether you're white, whether you're African, African African-American, whether you're inner city, country, or big city, all you know is all you know, and it produces this massive blind spot into how you were raised. And so what we have to do as Christians is always go back to the Word of God and see what the Bible says. Because every generation's got to be purged. Every generation's got to be pruned. Every generation's got to be reset according to God. Even in a marriage, my marriage, active marriage, we're always resetting our marriage, always pruning, always sitting and letting the Word of God judge us, decipher us, uh, help us, make us better. This is part of being a Christian. If not, culture shifts away from God. Culture will always shift away from God because of the sin nature and the fallen world. That's why we stick with the Bible. Uh, In the Old Testament, and during the Exodus, and once they went into Jericho, excuse me, into the Promised Land, they would come back to a place called Gilgal. They'd go out to war, come back to Gilgal. Go out to war, come back to Gilgal. And Gilgal means circuit or where the, the, the shame was rolled away. But it's indicative of a, a cycle that you go out and you come back and reset. You go out, fight a battle, you come back and reset. You go out, have a vacation, then you come back and you reset. You go start a business, you come back to the Word of God and reset. You have a family reunion, and you come back and reset based on the Word of God. You go to work, you come home at night and reset based on the Word of God. If you're not in the Bible or praying or going to church on a regular basis, you're not ever resetting, and you're becoming more and more like the world. Culture does that. Those of us that are older than, say, 35 or 40, we can recognize this nation has accelerated in its degradation in the last 10 years. It's all tied to social media, and, the, and it just is what it is. We have to constantly come back to the Word of God. I, as a pastor and a minister and a teacher, I'm watching famous, international-level famous preachers teach heresy and leave the Scripture because it's cool and it's popular and it's what all their friends want to hear. I'm not here to be cool or popular. I don't want a mega ministry. I don't want to be famous. 
I just want to be faithful to Jesus Christ. And if that means thinning out half the church, so be it. I owe God my salvation. I owe you nothing. Jesus Christ died for me. You barely come to church. So why would I bend my service for you? I wish more preachers would be that mindful. Just because you survived your upbringing doesn't mean it was biblical or that your kids need to relive it. Every one of us is going, yeah, we'll change that, and we'll change that, and we'll change that. Some of us think, nope, mama should have done more of that. I'm going to do more of that. Daddy should have done more of that. I'm going to do more of that. Don't eat none of that. I ain't not having none of that in our house. Just because you survived your upbringing doesn't mean it was biblical or that your kids need to relive it. We have a situation now, of course, you know, homosexual marriage is very popular in our nation, and they're adopting kids because homosexuals can't produce life. So they're adopting kids, and now one of the phenomenons among gay couples is that their kids are having to come out to mom and dad and tell them, I'm straight. Wow. I'm pretty sure that's not what God intended in Genesis, that kids are worried about coming out as straight to their gay parents. What is God's blueprint for family? Let's review real quick. Here's what, here, let me make this real statement in case you didn't know, because we got visitors. This is a church. This is a Christian church. We practice biblical Christianity. So all of my doctrine is taken from the Bible. It should not shock you if what I say violates our current culture, because our current culture is not biblical. I care nothing about this current culture because it mocks my God. So please don't be offended by anything I say. It should not shock you that you're in a church and we're talking about churchy things. Sometimes you, it's like going to a basketball game and you're offended that basketball took place. I'm going to a hockey game and you're offended that it's cold in there. Like this is a hockey rink. It's going to be cold in here. This is a church. I endeavor to be a holy man of God. I preach nothing but the Bible. So please don't be offended if I cross plow your little woke soul. All right, we don't do acronym soup around here. We do scripture. First thing God said, be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth. The very first intention of God, this is also called the social mandate, theologically speaking, families, husbands and wives, they are to reproduce life. It was very popular 25, 30 years ago for people not to have kids. But the social mandate, the very first commandment of the entire Bible is to have babies. I understand sometimes your womb is barren or maybe the man is sterile. Adopt babies. But the whole purpose, God tells us in Malachi 2, the whole purpose for allowing marriage is so that God can have godly seed, a generation that will propagate his name in the earth. That's the whole reason for kids. When we had our first child, I held that baby. It was you know, earth-shattering to hold a human being that totally belongs to us and is totally a blank slate. I remember looking down at Lydia and I remember thinking as I'm holding her, I could make you a woman of God or I could make you a terrorist and it will be totally my doing. I could train you to love God or I could train you to mock God and it will totally be my doing. God gave us babies to give him godly seed so that his generations and his name can be propagated to the ends of the earth. We have a whole generation of parents that don't care about church. They won't raise their kids in church. Their kids will be twofold more the lukewarm child of hell than themselves. Amen. It's really quite shameful. And now in the, the climate that we're in, it doesn't take long to fall apart. Actually, the world is making celebrities out of famous preachers' kids that are apostatizing. And they, they can't wait to get those people to come speak on their television show to just talk about how wicked Christianity is. I've been to Africa a lot. I've never seen a gay club digging a water well for Africans. I've never seen a, a, board, a group of professors in Africa digging a water well. I never saw the HIV club starting an orphanage in Africa, but I have seen a lot of churches of every denomination and creed. That wicked, evil Christianity doing stuff for people, laying down their lives, humanitarian work. Who do you think gave birth to humanitarian work? It wasn't the Mongols. They built a wall to keep those guys out. This reveals that God wants married couples to procreate and have children. That's not the only reason for sex, but that's why sex does what it does. Thankfully, we can enjoy sex as well. We'll cover that probably next week. Second thing the Lord said was subdue the earth and have dominion. 
There is a heresy in the earth I reject. It's mostly on the West Coast called creation stewardship. This is where basically we're, we're, a lot of Christians are saying we need to really stop focusing on some things and begin on focusing on saving planet earth. But my Bible tells me that we're to have dominion in the earth to subdue the earth. Now, I'm not a guy who's going to change my oil in a creek. I think that's pretty ridiculous, but I, I'm for conservation. But my, I don't exist to recycle. I worked in the zinc mine industry. I've, I've been, I was an environmental geologist. I've done a boatload of environmental work. You cannot sell environmentalism outside the West. <laughs> I've been to some of the, the, the most remote, poorest places in the world, and you're not going to be able to teach those people, don't throw that in your water hole. That's exactly where it's going. We have dominion in the earth, but this is authority given to the family. Mom and dad together are one couple. They, they have the prayer of agreement. They can have anything that's coming together in the name of Jesus. We have dominion, but dominion begins in our family. Dominion begins in our marriage. Dominion begins over our children, and then dominion extends beyond that. So from the very beginning, we have this doctrine of dominion and subduing. This is part of God's vision for family. And you don't subdue or submit to soccer every Sunday. You submit the earth to yourself. You stand for Jesus Christ. You declare a thing. We do gymnastics. For whatever reason, they sure like to have meets on Sundays. We don't go. We pay a lot of money to not go. My wife finally called up, I don't know, the district or whatever, and said, hey, probably because nobody's squawking at you. We're Christians. We go to church. Have you ever thought about maybe not doing these things on Sundays? Somebody needs to squawk. Christians just roll over and just chase their kids and the kids ball all over God's green earth on Sunday. Then you'll wonder why your kids go up and go to hell because you taught them church was fourth place, fifth place, sixth place. Anyway, third thing, man was placed in God's garden to dress and keep it. So man, part of family's job is keeping the house of God, the garden of God. These are all allegories for the same thing. The purpose of man, the reason we exist is to care for God's things. The garden of God, that, that is now the church under the Mosaic Covenant. It was a tabernacle. It was Israel. Now it's the church. This is where man was working when he needed a wife. He was not working at the bar. He, was, he wasn't just consumed with video games. If you're consumed with video games, you don't need a wife. You need, you need a life. And ladies, don't ever fall for a dude consumed of video games. You want a man who has a work ethic. Now, I understand games can be a little bit of fun, but when that's your life, I mean, you're really not going to be a Twitch guy the whole life, right? You're not going to make six figures, seven figures twitching it. Twitch is, uh, like old folks, I'm 45 now. This is social media app where people, you log on and you watch people play video games. We call that going to the neighbor's house growing up. We went across the street to the Castmans because they had an NES. We didn't, and we watched them play Mario. And we played Castlevania, and we played, played Kung Fu. And we played everything we could play. And then the, we had Duck Hunt. Now, you sit up late at night watching somebody else play, and they get paid a lot of money. And then you pay them money for them to call your name out. Don't marry someone involved in that. Oh, my Lord. What? No. Some of the old folks are like, I, you lost me at Duck Hunt. 1985. Yeah. All right. Yeah. You want to marry a man working in the kingdom. Furthermore, let me raise the standard since some of you don't have one yet. You don't meet your future mate at a bar. You don't meet them on a dating app. You don't meet them in class. You don't meet them at the gym. You don't meet them at the beach. You meet your future spouse in the garden because according to the kingdom, man was working in the garden and that's where God left him. And that's where God found him when God had a woman for him. So some of you, you're just so desperate, you'll just, any, any guy that pays you half a bit of attention, that's your man. Are you that desperate? When I teach this, I don't care where you're coming from. I'm going to teach you the best standard. You have the best, and then like Dr. Crystal says, then you have the rest. I don't want the rest. I want the very best standard. I don't care where you came from. I don't care if you were raised by a pack of wolves. That's not God's best. I care about raised by robots on a spaceship somewhere. It's not God's best. Man was placed in God's garden to dress and keep it. And gentlemen, that's where you're going to meet your wife too. She's going to be in the house of God because that's how you're going to have a fruitful life in the house of God. This is what we exist for. Some of you exist for a lot of other things and church is a hobby to you. If church is a hobby to you, we'll give an altar call and you can repent to God for mocking him. 
Church is not a hobby. The kingdom is not a hobby. It is our life. And this is the construct with which God invented family or developed family or institutionalized family. All right. Fourth thing God said, it is not good for man to be alone. So thankfully, he was working with man. He was, man was naming all these animals, and man was beginning to develop this picture in his heart that every animal has a counterpart. Not a same part. Counterpart. The Greek word is hetero. Every dog, there was a hetero dog. Every hippo, there was a hetero hippo. Every sheep, there was a hetero sheep. And man is realizing everybody's got a counterpart but me. I'm all alone. And the God's the one that points out you're alone. That kind of tells me that the man was not alone feeling sorry for himself, staying on social media too late at night trying to find a guy. Nor was he playing the field dating anything with legs. He was too busy serving God. God had to say, hey, I got something for you. What? It's really going to help. What? You're by yourself. I am? Look at all these animals. Look at all this work. No, no, trust me. There's something better for you. He had no idea because he was thoroughly established in his walk with God. God brought the woman. He says, I will make him a helpmeet for him. God said, I will make him a helper. Man needed help. And here's, my, here's one of my arguments or one of my doctrines. You don't have to agree with it, but you'll be wrong if you don't. Not everybody deserves to be married. If we go back to the book of Genesis, you don't get married because you're 23 and just graduated and it's what the culture does. You get married because you're busy serving God and now you need help to do more. That's the pattern. That's the law of first mentions, which is a hermeneutical tool in the school of theology. You get married not because you're horny or lonely or because mom and dad are breathing down your neck to do it or because your culture is telling you every one of our people at 25 is married with two kids and here you are, 26. That's not why you get married. You get married because you're serving God and now you need help to take it to the next level. If you come to church once a month, that doesn't qualify. If you barely call yourself a Christian, that doesn't qualify. Now, you can go do anything you want to. Our culture proves that. You can marry a dog today if you want to. That doesn't mean it's what God wants. You can marry that pretty girl you swiped right on. That doesn't mean it's the will of God. You can marry that high school sweetheart. It doesn't mean it's the will of God. God said, I'll make him a helpmeet. Well, a helpmeet means he needs help. What was he doing? Was he being lonely before? Was he being lusty before? He was busy serving God. He needed help doing more for God. That is God's best will and purpose for getting married. Not because you're lonely and insecure and broken. God can fix that. A mate cannot. A spouse will only bring out the worst in you. They'll bring out the good in you too. But marriage magnifies things, good or bad. <laughs> Marriage doesn't really fix much of anything. If it did, there'd never be any divorces. Marriage would just fix everything. Half a person marrying half a person does not equal a whole person, equals a fraction of a person, a quarter of a person. You're awfully quiet. I've taught this stuff for about 10 years around here, trying to give you God's best. There's God's best, and then there's America. Then there's the tender culture, the grinder culture, the fraternity culture, the sorority culture, the hookup culture. The acronym culture, the spaghettio culture. Pets as companionship never crossed anyone's mind. We looked at this last week, it offended some of you. God placed animals beneath us. He never gave us permission to promote them to equal status with family. Every year I get Christmas cards, even from preachers, and there's that dog on that thing, and that's their family. One of our church members uh, owns a cleaning business, and she was telling me, Pastor, you know, I got that one house I go to. They are determined to let their animals live like them, but all they end up doing is living like animals. I thought that is a profound observation. I'm not against pets. As long as you know your pet is somebody else's meal somewhere in the earth. We're already losing some of you because you're offended. I'm just giving you Genesis. Are you shocked that you're in church hearing church stuff? Should come more often. You'd think straight. We now live in the day of animals as therapy, animals as medication, and animal addiction. Every, like every week you read something like the, the feds have to go in there and bust a puppy mill, and there's a single wide trailer with like 95 animals living in there and six inches of feces. 
and they give you a list and it's really like Noah's Ark except a trailer. There's, that's messed up. And when you give more affection to an animal than you do a human being, that's messed up. And when you'd rather save a dog than a human being, that's messed up. And when the thought of abortion doesn't bother you, but the thought of puppy abortions bothers you, that's messed up. All right, we're having fun already. God still wants to be our all in all, our comforter. He wants to be the husband to the widow. Sometimes you lose a spouse, a husband to the widow. He wants to be the father to the orphan. He does not give us any biblical permission to replace human beings with furry animals. He told Peter in Acts, arise, kill, and eat. All manner of four-footed beasts. Everything that walks or creepeth upon the earth is food for us. And what you would promote unlawfully and against the Bible to family member status is somebody else's dinner. And I would tell you, foreigners come to our country and says, what is wrong with the Americans? And I was like, I don't know. I couldn't tell you. I would tell you 70 years of Disney anthropomorphizing animals is one thing. <laughs> we put a smile. If it can smile and talk with a cute kid's voice, we ought to adopt it. This AI ethicist out of MIT says robots can be our partners. She's holding a robotic animal. The MIT researcher says that for humans to flourish, we must move beyond thinking of robots as potential future competitors. So we're actually in their stage now. In Japan, there's already men marrying their sex bots. But now, and I don't know anything about this lady. This just caught my eye as we're talking about companionship. She's saying she's an artificial intelligence ethicist out of MIT. She says robots can be our partners. We can find companionship with them. This is where the world is going. We won't walk across the street to greet somebody, but we'll adopt nine dogs. We won't open our home to be a friend to somebody, have them over for a Christmas open house, but we'll go down the rescue mission and adopt 12 cats. Humankind is broken. And we're looking for affection in places that are unlawful. What is God's blueprint for marriage? The fifth thing God said when establishing his perfect plan for families, I will make him a helper. God's institutions, whether garden or family, cannot be done alone. I'm not going to touch broken homes, but families cannot be done alone. We have single parents in here. I get it. But God's original intent is families cannot be done alone. Man needed to help meet the garden of God needed to help meet. We need help in all that we do. Uh, some of you, uh, you're divorced or your spouse has died. And if you want a mate, seek God for one. He'll bring you one because your children deserve two parents. Two parents. God's original intent for parenting was two parents. A man and a woman because whether it's a boy and a girl, they need to see how both sexes are to be modeled or patterned biblically. They'll tell us one of the biggest problems, one of the most common factors in the breakdown of the inner city is that it's fatherless. And these young men don't know how to be men. I talked to one of my friends who's a, who's a black guy, he's an inner city pastor, grew up in the hood. I said, how can I pray for the inner city? He said, man, we need father figures. We need father figures. Now, if he can tell me we need father figures in the hood, then why would a woman adopt kids on her own? Again, that's going to offend you. But I'm talking about God's best. If you can have the best, why would you settle for anything else except for maybe it's about you? Selfish people settle for third place. Folks that are focused on God want God's best. God's vision always requires help with a different perspective, an opposite, a hetero. When you need help, you don't need somebody who can see everything you see. You need someone who can see things that you can't see. It was Ruth Graham who said, if me and my husband always agree on everything, one of us is unnecessary. Amen. And that's why God made a woman to balance and be the counterpart to the man. God doesn't need help providing help. So get off Christian mingle. Get on your knees and seek God. 
Quit swiping left and right. Quit flirting with every cute guy at the store and seek God and maybe figure out what you can be doing more for the kingdom of God so that you might actually be trained to be a spouse. Because I'm, I'm, I'm convinced unless you're serving in the house of God, you don't need to be married. I don't deal with pagans. I deal with Christians. I'm a preacher. Unless you're serving in the house of God, why would God bring you a mate? Because you're lonely? Walk with God. It'll fix that. Because you're lusty? Walk with God. Put your appetites under. It'll fix that. But if you're not serving in the house of God, he said, I will give you a spouse so that I can have godly children. And if you're not serving the house of God, you're not going to raise godly kids. You're going to raise some weirdos. One, one out of five might turn out decent. The help was not a lap dog or a beast of burden. It was a specifically designed fellow human being. That is who God designed for Adam. And the Greek, or excuse me, the Hebrew tells us that man was formed out of the dust of the earth and, and it's forming like pottery, mud being squished together. But when he took the rib out of him, he built the woman. And it's a different word altogether. It means to be constructed like a house. Many a preacher has made the argument, and I support it, that women are more more fearfully created, more fearfully formed, more, more dynamic. They're able to adapt uh, themselves. Uh, men are pretty much one track. We're, we're like a blunt force object, whereas women are more like the Swiss army tool. We are a hatchet and our wives are like a Swiss army knife with a thousand tools in it. Every man who walks with God gets it. He looks at his wife and says, I don't know how you do everything you do. I'm just, I'm just gonna do my thing and do my thing. And she's busy making everything else work. <laughs> amen. Every, all the men who have godly wives say amen. All right. All right. All right. Don't leave me hanging because we're about to go over your head here. <laughs> Introducing complementarianism and economic subordinationism. Complementarianism. Do I have a slide for it? All right. Man and woman in the marriage covenant as partners have equal but different roles, graces, and abilities. That's complementarianism. I am a complementarian. I believe in complementarianism. I believe that man and wife, as I see it in the scriptures, in the marriage union, they have equal, they're equal partners, but they have different roles, graces, and abilities. Yet, there has to be one head. Anything with two heads is a freak. Everything in the earth works off of an executive. The president, the general, the captain, the boss, the shift manager, the line manager, the zone manager. There's always a head, and it funnels up a chain of command. That's called governments or administrations. Depends on how you want to split it. Complementarianism says man and woman in the marriage covenant as partners have equal but different roles. Equal but different. We both are parents in my marriage. We're both parents. We both care for the house. We both make an income. We both uh, work to live beneath our means. We have our different roles in our job. And yet when it comes time to make a decision, I'll get her input. And yet there has to be one decision making. If my wife makes major decisions behind my back, we have strife and chaos. That's complementarianism. I think 95% of the world says, oh, duh, yeah, it makes sense. Leave it to Western society and the Western church to say, no. They want to have what's called egalitarianism. We'll get to that here in a minute. This complementarianism was set in order before the fall and original sin. Now, this is where it upsets folks, and let me get into some theological mud. We're dealing right now in the church where more and more what we would call conservative evangelicals are rejecting complementarianism, and they're saying women should be able to do anything they want. Well, even men don't get to do anything they want. Even, okay, even me as the pastor, I'm the president of this ministry, I'm the, the pastor, I'm the, on the, uh, we are a non-for-profit, so I'm the president on the board of directors. I don't get to do anything I want. I have an annual board meeting. I have to submit everything to the board of directors. We have an elder board around here. We submit things to them. Even before I do anything major, I submit it to my wife. So it's a fallacy to say that, well, men just get to do anything they want. Women should be able to do anything they want. We're all submitted. No matter how you shift this, it, everybody's submitted somewhere. The cop is submitted to his captain. The captain submitted to the chief. The chief is submitted to the city council. City council submitted to the state. State submitted to the feds. Everybody's submitted. But you can see the spirit of lawlessness wanting to creep in to family and just upend everything. All right? So complementarianism, man being made first, needing help to do what he was authorized to do, that was set in order before the fall. 
There is a theology that says uh, that complementarianism is necessary because of the fall. But when you read it, the fall hasn't taken place when woman was made. And she is a helper. She's not the leader. She's a helper. Now, again, the more woke you are, the less you're going to like this. We're into our fifth wave of feminism now. Been making miserable, unhappy for 55 years. Look at 1 Corinthians 11. Again, don't be surprised if I quote churchy scriptures. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman is of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman was created for the man. That's complementarianism. They complement each other. Again, Adam needed help. God's the one that says, you need help, man. You need help. Now, before you, again, I can already feel the tension because you guys are just washed so much in this nation. If you could only hear the reverberation of your heart just going. All right, I mean, you can go down this little woke trail if you want. You're going to be miserable. Your kids are going to be rebels. You don't want to be in charge unless God puts you in charge. Egalitarianism. Egalitarianism means male and female are equal in authority and role. Equal in authority and role. All right. We got a lot, some babies in here. I don't see you breastfeeding there, man. It's not your role. So to be an egalitarianist, you got to say, I, I got a right to breastfeed. So you can strap on one of those dude things that they make for weird folks in Oregon. Yeah, you should pass. It's weird. <laughs> Egalitarianism says male and female are equal in authority and role within the marriage, and that basically there are no gender roles in the church. All right, that ignores Timothy, Timothy, and Titus. We'll get to that here in a moment. Outside of church, this is the argument, roles are based, ability-based, not gender-based. So the argument for egalitarianism as a Christian theology, which I reject, it says, well, basically outside of the church, what you do is based on your ability, not on a gender. So we ought to be able to do what we're able to do in the church. Okay, but what if God doesn't call you to do it? God doesn't call you to do it. So we're talking about God's design for family. All right? Oddly enough, charismatics are probably the best at letting women preach and women prophesy, and we're all for that, and we'll go to that here in a minute. But we got to understand how we were made. One of the things the spirit of lawlessness wants to do is try to get you to be something you're not. Because if you're something you're not, you'll break down, blow up, fizzle out, and be miserable the rest of your life. And that's not what God wants. So all we're trying to do is teach you how God designed you to be. Everybody knows women are better nurturers than men. That's why there aren't any men-run nurseries. And if there is one, don't drop your kids off there. There's no men kindergarten teachers. Nor are there, as last I checked, no female drill sergeants. Did you ever know of any? You did know of one. They weren't fully in charge? Yeah. They were there. That's probably a recent thing. Because we got to, you know, make everybody feel important. 1 Timothy 5.14. Let's read this verse real quick. 1 Timothy 5.14. Let's just see if the New Testament says anything about egalitarianism or complementarianism, because otherwise, why would we be teaching it? <laughs> I will therefore that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. The word guide the house there means master of affairs. Every husband knows his wife runs the house. Doesn't mean she runs the marriage, but every man knows that woman knows where everything is. It's a grace she has. There's all sorts of jokes about this that it ain't lost till mama can't find it. Mama knows where everything is. Mama knows where the kids are at. Mama has a sixth sense. Guys out there playing video games or shooting something with a BB gun. And mama knows where everything is. And she's doing a load of laundry. And she's baking a cake. And she's vacuuming. And she's doing this. And the guy's out there cutting the grass. And he's listening to music. And that's all he's doing. She's doing nine things at once. And knows where the kids is. And she's homeschooling. This is, this is a woman. She's crazy fearfully, wonderfully made way beyond anything a man can handle. And I think we understand that, but that's the way God made you to be. So then why would you want to do our thing? It'd be a waste of your skill set. Titus 2, saying there's no differences of roles. 
Titus 2, 3 through 5 says, The aged women, Titus chapter 2, May the aged women be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers. So here's a role. That's a gender role. When it uses the word woman, that, if, I don't know if you knew this. It's a gender. Nobody asked the apostle Paul, can, we, can you tell me your pronouns? <laughs> We've gone to just making up stuff. Somebody told me they want to, when they have to, some of you don't know what that means. It's kind of this new trans thing where they want you to reveal your pronouns so you can be in the cool kids club, I guess, at the Fortune 500 company. You should identify as a potato because they can't judge you for that. That's wrong. So just ask them on the next form, what, what sex am I? I'm, where's potato? Uh, I identify as a potato. I'm offended. Why, why, are we, why can't I find potato? There's a hundred other genders on this. Where's potato? Age women. There's only two genders in the Bible, male and female. Likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober. Here's a gender role in the Bible. The age women teach the younger women. It's not my job as a man. You could get into adultery that way. Paul, being led by the Holy Ghost, is so super smart. Of course, when you're a Marxist or a wokeist or a progressive, you don't want there to be any gender lines. So let's just have the older men teach the younger girls. So here's a gender role. Aged women from the mouth of Paul. Remember, this is a church. We build our doctrine out of churchy things. Paul says, age women, this is how you're to behave and you're to be a teacher of good things and you're to teach the younger women to be sober. That means in control of your emotions, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home. Here's that other reference, keepers at home. You're, that's a governess. Obedient to their own husbands that the word of God be not blasphemed. Here's a gender role. So here's a verse that kind of tells us egalitarianism in the church is not really accurate. There are specific roles. I don't disciple women in this church. I don't meet with single ladies in this church. If I do, it's with my wife. It's just not safe. It's just not how this works. So if I believe egalitarianism, I could possibly be setting myself or the elders up for adultery, inappropriate behavior. And now, now we're back into the Me Too movement. Hashtag Me Too. He touched me. He flirted with me. Well, you said there weren't gender roles. You said we could do everything. The inmates have escaped, and they are running the asylum. And they teach at seminaries now. Proverbs 31, you know the Proverbs 31 woman? We won't go there. But that woman is busy, 17 actions she's taking. She's an entrepreneur. She's into real estate. She's into agriculture. She's into textiles. She runs her home. She manages. She's the governess of the home. Her husband's a politician. He's influential. He sits at the city gates. And when she comes home after having been very successful, her children and her husband arise. That's an act of honor. They arise, mother is home, and they call her blessed. They know how blessed they are to have that hardworking woman in their life. She, she is everything these feminists want to be, except she has a gracious home. So we're talking about God's plan for family. Together in marriage, we are seen as one in the sight of God because man gave up a rib, woman was taken out of man. We come back together, we're seen as one. Yet as a team, they consult but there must be one head, one final voice. Otherwise, strife and discord arises. My wife and I talk about everything. She submits things to me. I submit things to her. But when it's all said and done, there's only one voice. Some of you would do better to get more information from your wife, more perspective. You would be better to get more input from her. What do you see, honey? How do you feel about this? Never underestimate your wife's intuition, her wisdom, her experience, her grace. If she's good for nothing, why did you marry her? I mean, did you just want to have something to have sex with? Your wife knows a lot of stuff, and you would be wise to pick her brain on things. She has graces you don't have. She has a perspective you don't have, and together you're one. And wives only have to bow up and give their opinion when the husband's too ignorant to ask for it. And listen, if you're able to call her a Jezebel to her face, she's not one. Because if she was one, you'd pick yourself up off the floor. <laughs> Amen. So some of you men need to chill out. Quit calling your wife a Jezebel just because she's smarter than you. <laughs> Be glad you married up. 
<laughs> I mean, because a real Jezebel slit your throat in your sleep and blame it on an intruder. So I, just, I just miss him. I don't know what I'm going to do. I got a flight to catch. I just don't know what we're going to do. But I, hear, I hear it through the church calling your wife a Jezebel because she wants you to quit ruining your marriage. She has every right to call out to you. Like my wife will yell at me if I'm not paying attention and I hit the rumble strips. Honey, honey. That doesn't make her a Jezebel. That makes her someone who fears for her life. <laughs> yeah, you guys don't have permission to use Jezebel as a disarming weapon for your wife. She's part of this company. She's part of your, your covenant. Economic subordinationism. Here's a fancy word. Maybe we can chill out all the feminists in the pulpits. This is the doctrine of equals in nature and attributes, but differing in their roles and relations to each other, i.e. the Trinity. Economic subordinationism applies first and foremost to the Trinity. And if we can apply it to the eternal Godhead, and if it works for God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost, why are we dare trying to be egalitarianistic in our marriages? Jesus Christ isn't in charge. The Father is. But Jesus is in charge of the church. We'll go through a list of stuff here. Egalitarianism, excuse me, economic subordinationism is the doctrine of equals in nature and attributes, just like my wife and I are equal in how God sees us. We might go so far as to say we're equal in our attributes or our roles but, uh, or, or how we, uh, our nature, because she's one way, I think another way, but God sees us as one, yet we differ in our roles and how we relate to each other. That's the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are equals as God. They differ, they differ in their roles, their functions, and in subordination. Now, so what economic means is, the word economics comes from the Greek oikonos, which means how you run a household. So subordinationism, this means who is submitted where. And for the sake of the house, there has to be submission. For the sake of the house, there has to be submission. And if theology agrees that for the sake of the house, the Godhead is submitted, then is it too far a stretch to say wives are to be submitted or children are to be submitted? All right, you're awfully quiet. You're thinking. We can email you the PowerPoint. Examples. What is that? The Father sent Jesus, not vice versa. So there's submission. Jesus is the only begotten, not the Spirit. So it's a different role. Jesus died for us. The Holy Spirit and the Father did not. There's differences, roles, different assignments. The Father commanded the Son, not the Holy Spirit, to die for us. So this is called economic subordinationism. They are equal. They are the eternal Godhead. Three persons, one God, a great mystery, a tremendous tension in the Scriptures. But this is summarized by calling it economic subordinationism. And what I'm getting at is this is how our marriages work. There are so many strengths my wife has that I don't have and never will. And when it comes to those, I defer to her. And I need her wisdom and I need her perspective. But at the end of the day, the Lord Jesus holds me accountable for the direction of our family. At the end of the day, it's everything according to the will of the Father. Jesus prayed to the Father to send the Holy Spirit. So Jesus said, I'll pray the Father and he'll send you another comforter. So Jesus asked the Father. The Father obeyed the Son and sent the Holy Spirit. Is your brain steaming yet? It's like... Or you can just be like a oneness Pentecostal and not believe in the Trinity. It just solves everything really easy. Except you have to ignore about a thousand scriptures to be that. Jesus came to do the will of the Father, and the Holy Spirit was sent to do the will of Jesus. So now we have a chain of command. Economic, for the sake of the household, subordinationism. The Father chose us. The Holy Spirit did not. Equal but not in roles or function, equal, but not in subordination or authority. Jesus is the name above all names. Not Jehovah, not Holy Spirit, Jesus. So even there, there's a different authorization in the earth. 
The earth will be made the footstool of Jesus Christ, not the footstool of the Holy Spirit. And yet they're one God. So if all this just confuses you, just be a precious little Christian and quit skipping so much and come to the house of God and be trained up. Any question you have has already been debated and proven from the Word of God 15,000 times over. You just barely come to church and you want a pop culture feel-good latte and you call that Christianity. You are blind and on your way to hell. There's so much more to theology and the scriptures than just going to church with purple light skinny jeans and a latte bar and feeling good about yourself even though you're in fornication and you're drunk. Be subject one to another. So here's economic subordinationism in the marriage. First Peter 5, 5 says we're to be subject one to another. I submit lots of things to my wife, but I'm the head. And yet wives are to be subject to your own husbands. Look at all those verses. Ephesians 5, 22, 24, Colossians 3, 18, 1 Peter 3, 1 and 5. So we've got five verses right there that tell wives you're to submit to your own husband. That lets us know wives don't submit to every husband. Even in this church, because of our governments and our administrations, I've delegated authority across the board. I've submitted some stuff to Ms. Hannah, my secretary, and to department heads, and Ms. Kylie, our worship leader. There are areas where I submit to women because I've delegated the authority to them. Ms. Sarah Ogilvie's over vacation Bible school. Whatever she needs, I give it to her. Pastor, I need this. All right, you can have it. Pastor, can I do this? Do you need it? Yes, you can have it. So I submit to her. Yet at the end of the day, I'm responsible for the church. I submit things to my wife, but at the end of the day, I'm responsible for the direction of our church. And yet, my wife submits to me as her husband, as do these ladies submit to me as their pastor, but they submit to me as pastor, not as husband. Because that means there's areas I have no say in. I only am over them in the ministry area that I've designated to them. I think we understand this. It should be common sense. But again, if you fly your kite in the woke winds of feminism, this just makes you so mad. Oh, you're just saying women are nothing. I haven't said that at all. I've put men down way more than I've put women down. Oh, no, man. I feel bad for wives marrying some of you guys. Getting called Jezebel just because you care more about the direction of the family than your husband does. Bless your heart. For the husband is the head. 1 Corinthians 11.3 and Ephesians 5.23 says that. The husband is the head of his wife. The husband is the head of the wife. The Hebrew word for that, though, this is from the Greek New Testament. The Hebrew word would be rosh. Rosh means headship. Rosh means the one in charge. Rosh means the one that's in authority. Rosh means the one who makes the final decision. Yet we're still subject one to another. Yet the husband leaves father and mother to cleave to his wife. So this, this is where the husband leaves everything to show the woman how important she is. So again, economic subordinationism. We're kind of seeing a little bit of a trinity here. We're seeing God's relationship with the husband, with the wife, and there's, pardon it, it's not a good theology, but there's a loose trinity here. Even as Ecclesiastes says, a threefold cord is not easily broken. Husband, wife, and then we weave God into that cord. We see that there's a lot of crisscrossing of submission Yet the husband has to be in charge. And yet, even though the husband's in charge, he abandons, in a sense, mom and dad to be with his wife. Now, some of you still need to do that. You've been married quite a while. You still haven't done that yet. This is how it's supposed to work, gentlemen. When you're in the womb, you're attached by an umbilical cord. That's acceptable. Then that gets cut. It's time to upgrade. Then you attach to the breasts. That can last from anywhere up to one to two years. If, if kids coming in asking for a snack and we're still doing that, that's a little weird. I mean, like if, if the kid climbs up and can do it all himself and you're just on your phone Facebooking, you need to wean the kid. They do it in the third world. I get it because it's free food. But when the kid's hot and sweaty, he's been playing double dutch and wants some. We typically here in the West, one year, year and a half. So upgrade, that gets cut off. You start toddling around and something scares you, you run behind mama, you grab a hold of her apron strings. And then about five or six, that gets cut and it's time to upgrade. At five and six. You still honor your mother, 
But at some point, you leave her, and she has no say in your marriage. You dishonor your wife by giving your mother more say in your marriage than you do your wife. That is so disrespectful, dishonorable, and perverse when you let your mother or your father have more say in your marriage than your wife. Now, some cultures permit that. It's not biblical. Because from Genesis chapter 2, Adam prophesies, For this reason shall a man leave his father and leave his uh, mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. My parents have no say in my marriage. My mother-in-law has no say in my marriage. It's none of their business. They have no idea what our money does. They have no idea what our vacations do until we tell them. They have no idea what my home does. It's none of their business because I'm going to obey God. I'm going to leave mom and dad and cleave to my wife. And now I have a covenant with my wife. I have no covenant with mama. I have no covenant with daddy. My covenant is with my wife. And if I want to dishonor God, I dishonor my wife. That automatically dishonors God. You don't invite somebody to a covenant who doesn't belong there. I have had to tell family members before, you, you assault my wife, you verbally insult her again, I will cut you off and never talk to you again. I don't care who you are to me. That is my wife. That is my covenant partner. She's who I'm committed to, not you. So you just keep pushing it. We won't ever talk again. I promise you, I'll forgive you, but you, I'm not going to let my wife be around some family member that insults her and makes her cry. That's despicable. Amen. It's good preaching too. The wife is now superior to parents. Amen. I'll listen to my mom. I'll listen to my mother-in-law. I'll listen to my dad. i listen to my wife, 100 to 1 over them. Because they got no dog in my fight. My wife does. Once you get married, your wife is now superior to mama. Now, I can speak for Japanese culture because I'm pretty versed in it. Um, the, Japanese, the Japanese man would say if he's in a rowboat and he has his mother and his wife in the boat and the boat sinks and he can only save one, he would save his mother. And the, the cultural logic is I can always get another wife. Christianity says you save your wife. Pragmatism says, why'd you take them both out on a date with you? That was just, you're asking for trouble. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> Unless you wanted to row that boat in without mama. The covenant is with the wife, never father or mother. So whoever I have a covenant with, that's who I talk to the most. That's who I'm committed to. So I, I want you to see the economic subordinationism here is that, that even though my wife is under me in authority, she outranks my mom and dad, and I demonstrate my love to her by giving everything to her and, and finding her wisdom and finding her perspective and finding her help. Nevertheless, in the Lord, wife is not independent of husband, nor is husband independent of wife. So 1 Corinthians 11, 11 sums it up. It says, look, he, preceding that, he says the head of every woman is the husband. But then he kind of comes back and encapsulates it in a, a, a reflection of economic subordinationism. And he says, listen, in marriage, you're both dependent on each other. He says the husband's in charge, the husband's in charge, the husband's in charge. The husband was made and the wife was made for him. But you guys are both dependent on each other, just like God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And I know there's neither male nor female, and there's neither Jew nor Gentile, and there's neither bond nor free, but there are still roles to be played. And it is a, it's a deception to say we all have equal roles. Does, can you sell your boss on that? Can you sell the drill instructor on that? Can you sell the football team? Hey, we all got equal roles. It doesn't work anywhere in life except for where it matters the most, which is in the family or the house of God. The wife was built from the rib. Let's look at some symbolism here real quick. She is as close as possible to her husband by his side. That's where he wants her, right there. She is under his arm of protection. Where's mama? Ain't nowhere to be found. Because God didn't make a mama for the man. He made a wife. Some of you cut the apron strings. She guards his heart. That's what she wants to do. Every woman says, I would, my marriage would be better if my husband would just share more with me. Because her design is to guard the heart. She was built. She was not built from a foot bone because she is not under his feet. I go to other cultures a lot. It breaks my heart to see my sisters in Christ be treated so poorly because of ignorance, even in the church overseas. 
they, they, those men would think that their woman was built from a foot bone and therefore he just steps all over her. It's heartbreaking. I told one church, I said, uh, we were in Kenya. I said, um, how, many, how many of you men have daughters? And they're cheering, you know, proud of their daughters. How many of you would like a man to treat your daughter the way you treat your wife? Well, it got quiet. It got hostile. It got angry. I said, by guile, I, I fooled you, like Paul said. I said, I want you to know that your wife is God's daughter. And the way you treat her makes God just as angry as I just made you. So you better fix it. Treat that daughter of God with respect. She's your equal, though you're the head. She's your best friend, your covenant partner, your lover, the mother of your children. She's not your slave. She was not taken from the skull because she is not over him. Some guys, some women are so strong, they want to purposely marry weak men so they can just always have somebody to control. That's miserable. She meets her man face to face as an equal and provides a fresh perspective, a balanced counsel, and a skill set he completely lacks. If you and your wife are identical, you messed up somewhere. You guys got to balance each other. Being taken from man, she is everything he is not, and she possesses everything he lacks. Now we're talking this equality in marriage, and yet there's still a subordinationism. There's still someone must be in charge. There are times in my marriage or even in this church, I'll say, what does so-and-so say? That's what we're going to do because they're in charge. Ultimately, I can trump it if I need to. I tell the kids, what's mama say? Can I do this? What'd mama say? Because I don't want to be against mama, you know. We try to keep it unified. From Mama says, okay, all right, then you can do it. In that regard, I submit to Mama. He cannot produce life without her. All he can do is organize what already exists. So if you guys would start treating your wives better, you might get more life going in your life. She is the mother of life and the nurturer. He declares names and voices dominion. And this is a a nutshell. You can go two or three semesters in seminary on what's called ontological Trinitarianism and um, economic Trinitarianism. Ontological, ontology just means the study of nature, the study of being, the study of essence. When you talk about the ontology, ontological Trinity, you're talking about three persons, one God equal. Ontological Trinity. And yet you've got to stop and also say, but there's a economic trinity where God the Father is in charge and he commanded the Son and the Son obeyed and the Son was led by the Holy Spirit who was the voice of God and yet, the, yet he were the Son learned he obedience. So the Son learned obedience through the things that he suffered. It's the same way in marriage. And if we can wrap our hearts and mind around the Godhead being equal but submitted, why is it a stretch? Why is it so hard to see it in marriage? especially when it's, it's common sense. It's human nature. And without a whole lot of doped up hormones, women are just not as aggressive as men. When something goes bump in the night, who is thrust out of bed to go check on it? So some of you feminists, if you want some, so you want some of that? Yeah. You, you open the pickles. You go check on the thing that goes bump in the night. You go fix the car. I'm sure there's some good female mechanics. You go do all the stuff that you know you're just not built to do. And yet, men, you got to praise your wife because she does all the stuff you are not built to do. The nurture, the caring. She's the one that gets up when the kids are crying because she'll figure out instantly. She can tell the sound of their cries, that pain, is that sorrow, is that fear. She knows it. She knows all where the clothes are at. She knows how to dress them. If I was left to dress the kids, they'd wear the same thing all week. <laughs> Why not? I got nobody to impress in this town. They would look like we were pioneer children. They'd have dirt all over their face. <laughs> and then I'd say this. Get in the backyard. We're going to hose you down. And we just hose them down. And we put on a different set of clothes. We wear those for the next week. That's how it would work if I was in charge. So 
So evidently, I'm ontologically submitted because I'm not in charge because my kids always dress amazing. I'm asked to put on shoes and fix Bud's hair. That's all I get to do with the children. <laughs> Yet also, any good parent will tell you kids always fear dad spanking more than mamas because there's a difference. There's a difference. Please don't let daddy spank me. Please don't let that. That goes back to the stone age. Please don't let daddy spank me. Have we learned anything this morning? <laughs> 